Open your Bibles to John chapter 16, verses 27 through 32. In this marvelous passage, we have one of the great conversations that are recorded in the book of John. Isaac Watts, writing in his excellent book, The Improvement of the Mind, which he wrote 250 years ago as the second volume of his first work called Logic, The Right Use of Reason in the Inquiry After Truth. I would highly recommend those two books, Logic and the Improvement of the Mind, for every father. Read those two books, even if it takes you a year per book, read those two books and pass the teachings on to your children. Logic, the first book, encourages us to use our minds correctly. It is full of practical lists on how to think correctly. And then the second book, The Improvement of the Mind, tells us that there are five ways to improve our mind, and that's why I've mentioned these books this morning. Of the five ways to improve your mind, two, uh, here are the five. Reading is one of the ways to improve your mind. Study is another way to improve your mind. Meditation or reflection observation, looking. Number four is conversation. And number five is listening to lectures. So every Sunday morning and every Sunday night, that fifth one, listening to lectures, is what we do. And if you read Isaac Watts' book, The Improvement of the Mind, he even has a section on how to listen to a sermon. It's so helpful. Practical lists. But that section on conversation is even better. He tells you how to talk. How to talk like a Christian. And we all talk, don't we? How ought we to talk like Christians? Well, the book of John records many conversations. Let me give you this two comparison and contrast. The book of Matthew has lectures from Jesus. Let me give you six examples. Matthew 5 to 7, the entire book of Matthew is structured around lectures. Jesus lectures, Matthew records. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. It's the laws of Christ. It's a lecture, the first lecture he ever gave. It's evangelistic. In fact, it's the greatest evangelistic sermon that has ever been preached. Matthew 5 to 7. Matthew chapter 10 is instruction for pastors. Matthew chapter 13 is the kingdom of God. There's a lot of talk in charismatic churches about the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. All of those people would be helped if they listened to the lecture of Jesus in Matthew chapter 13. In Matthew chapter 18, how to deal with sin. Matthew chapter 23, false teachers. Matthew chapter 24 and 25, the second coming. Those are lectures by Jesus Christ, and Matthew records more lectures by Jesus than any other book of the Bible. John, on the other hand, does not. It records conversations. If you have a red letter Bible, you can see this very easily. John chapter 3, red letters with Jesus coming to Nicodemus, but then black letters when Jesus speaks to, oh, I'm sorry, when Nicodemus speaks to Jesus. 
Chapter 4, Jesus and, the sermon at the, uh, Jesus and the woman at the well, as they talk back and forth. John chapter 5, Jesus talks to the Jews after he performs a miracle. The Jews are angry and they talk back and forth. John chapter 6, Jesus performs a miracle and gives them bread to eat. Then he's talking with the Jews all the way through chapter 6. John chapter 7, he's at a feast. And then they start talking to him and back and forth. The conversation goes, John chapter 8, the same thing as John 5. The Jews get angry at Jesus and he talks back and forth. John chapter 9, he heals a blind man and then they talk back and forth. John chapter 10, John chapter 13 to 17 is a discussion. Nine times in John 13 to 17, the disciples talk to Jesus. And usually when they talk, they say something foolish, naive, or backward because they weren't listening. Often it's full of pride, like John chapter 13. This is the last night before Jesus dies. The last night. Peter sees Jesus washing the disciples' feet, and what does he say in verse 6? You won't wash my feet. If I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. Okay, okay, wash me, wash me, but, but not just my feet, bathe me. No, Peter, you've already been bathed. I'm not bathing you, I'm just washing your feet. Every time Peter speaks to Jesus, he's saying something foolish and proud. Everyone's going to doubt you, all these 11. I wouldn't trust him. You can trust me though. You, You can trust me. Oh, I can trust you. Before the cock crows three times, you will deny me three times. In the book of Luke, it even says, that's when Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, I have prayed for you. That your faith would not fail. And when you are converted, Peter, I want you to strengthen all these men. You should be strengthening them, but you're so proud. You're just a firebrand. All of that is the conversation happening in John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Philip speaks and says, oh, let me show off. Show us who the Father is. And that's all we ask for, Jesus. Philip, what are you talking about? You're looking at me, and I'm showing you the Father. I told you that from the first day. Oh, let me just sit down and be quiet. It's a conversation, but apparently the disciples had not read Isaac Watts' book on the improvement of the mind. And in this conversation, we come to chapter 16, the final interaction of the conversation, and it doesn't get any better. That is, it's always been... They're confused. What's happening here? And they're going to try one last time. All of the disciples in a group now, not just one of them, all of the disciples are, are going back and forth and they're going to try to show, now we get to Jesus. Now we understand. It's late at night. It's maybe 11 or 12 or 1 in the morning. We've been walking through the Garden of Gethsemane. We're about to be broken up in prayer groups. Nine of the disciples will pray here. Three of the disciples will go closer, and then you will go even farther. Just before we break up in prayer, Jesus, I want you to know it's worked. You've been teaching us, and we get it. That's what they're about to say. And then Jesus will say, I don't think you understand. That's the point today, or that's that's the outline for the sermon. The disciples reach a conclusion... And Jesus doubts their conclusion. That's two points. 
The conclusion that they reach is in verses 29 and 30, and the doubting comes in verses, uh, and the critique comes in verses 31 and 32. So if you're taking notes or if you're making it, you can make those. And then at the end, I'd like to give you five applications. Here's the main point. Here's the main point. It is a great blessing. It is a kindness. It is something like a holiday feast. It is a very good thing if someone will critique your false faith. Or, in other words, let me turn it into a question. How could we know if we had false faith? Or in just a simple, crisp sentence. Here it is. Statement, not even a sentence. Critiquing a claim to believe. That's the title. Our Lord Jesus will critique their claim that they believe. Look in verse 29. His disciples said to him, Behold, now you are speaking plainly, and you're not speaking a proverb. Wait a minute, let's understand that in verse 29. They say to him, look in verse 29. Now you are speaking plainly, which means before they thought that he was speaking in what? That's earlier on. Earlier on in the passage, they were confused. In verse 17, the disciples say among themselves, what does this mean? What does this mean? Look at verse 17. Do you see it? Are, are the disciples confused in verse 17? They're confused. They're talking amongst themselves. What's happening here? What's going on? We don't get this. He's going to leave us. He'll come back. Then he'll leave us and come back. What does this mean? That's in verse 17. A few minutes later, they say, ah, now we understand. Now we get you. Why? Because in verse 25, look at verse 25. He told them. I spoke to you in Proverbs, but the time is coming when I'll speak plainly. When I won't use figures and parables. So do you see what he said? He said, you've been confused, but the time is coming when I'll speak clearly and plainly to you. And then he, and then he gives us these marvelous verses of verse 27 and 28, which I almost thought should be a four-sermon series. But I, instead, I'm going to give them only in two minutes. Look at verse 27 and 28. For the Father himself loves you. Why? Because you have loved me. That's assurance of salvation. How do you know that God loves you? Do you love his son? All who love the son are loved by the father. How many times have I evangelized and people say, oh, I'm a Christian. How do you know? On the way back on Friday, we stopped at a place to have some food and I spoke to the man who gave us the food and said, would you call yourself a Christian? Think about it. When we're done eating, I'd like you to tell us what you think. We ate, and then we came back to him, and he said, oh, I've got an answer for you. I am sure I'm a Christian. How do you know? And he said, well, because I believe in God. I said, well, if you believe in God, that's the beginning, but you've got to go one step further and believe something else. I said, you think about it while we get ready to go, because it takes a while to get five kids ready. You think about it. We're all in the toilet and whatever. And then I want you to tell me, what's the thing you've forgotten? We come back. 
Who? I can't tell. You tell me, he says. You forgot Jesus Christ. Do you see that? And that's happened hundreds of times. Right there in verse 27, he says, The Father loves you because you have loved who? Jesus. Your faith will be rested on something firm if you love Jesus. There he goes. And in verse 28, notice this. I came forth from the Father. There's the incarnation. I am come into the world. There's the atonement. I leave the world and I go to the Father. There's the resurrection and his intercession, his prayer for his people. But now, that's what Jesus said to them. He said, the Father loves you because you loved me. I've been sent out by the Father. I've come into the world to die for sinners. I'm going to die on the cross and go to heaven. Oh, now we get it. You know those three years? It was confusing then, but now we get it. You know for the last four hours he's been talking to us, but now we understand. That's what they say. What did they understand? Look at verse 29. You tell me, what did they understand? You're speaking clearly. There's two things in verse 30 that he met, they mention that they now understand. What are the two things that the disciples say, now we get it? Before we didn't, but now we get it. What are the two things in verse 30? We know that Jesus knows everything. And what's the second thing? What is it? He came from God. Two things. If you have a pen, Mark, there's one, two. These disciples, they know something. They've got it. They have knowledge. They are the subjects of verse 30. We know. We are sure. We have confidence in two things. These are two good things to have confidence in. Jesus knows everything. Let me give you just a brief uh, list of some of the things they would remember. They might remember that when he was 12 years old, he knew all the right questions to ask the PhDs. And for three days, three days, Jesus had an impromptu Bible conference with no study. He keeps them busy for three days as a 12-year-old boy. He knows everything. And when his father and mother come to him, he says, you also should have known that I've got to be serving my father. That's when he's a boy. But he knows everything because in Matthew 9, verse 4, when he, when he forgives a man who's lame and not able to walk, he says, your sins are forgiven you. And the Pharisees say, who is this man blaspheming? But they only think it outside. Uh, oh, oh, how nice. Blasphemer. Matthew 9, verse 4. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? How could he know their thoughts? He knew all that man's sins, and then he knew their sins as well and their thoughts. The list goes on and on. I made a big list here, but for time, I'm just going to skip past them and say, Jesus knows it all. And the greatest example is what? What's the greatest example that Jesus knows everything? Hebrews 7, verse 25. He always lives to intercede for us. Who is the us? The sheep, not the Not the goats, it's the sheep. How can he possibly intercede for all the sheep at all times unless he knows everything? 
He does know everything. He knows your situation and your hardships. He knows that you're thinking of backsliding. He knows that you are weighing up in your mind and saying, how can I get out of this church because it's too convicting? How can I get away? How can I reduce my commitment? How can I relax things a little bit? He knows how that's going. He knows what's happening in your soul. He knows all things. Well, someone might object. Doesn't, doesn't it say two times in the Gospels that he didn't know the, the day that he would return? Matthew 24, 36 and Mark 13, 32. His human nature did not know, but his divine nature did. What? How can that be? Come back at Christmas and I'll preach on that. But notice that they believe something else. What's the second thing they believe in verse 30? What's the second thing they believe? That he came from God. To come from God is to be a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. Don't miss that sentence. Some of you missed it. To come from God is a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. Which ones? Genesis 12 verse 3. All nations in the world will be blessed by a child of Abraham. Genesis 12 3. 2 Samuel 7 15 and 16. Starting in verse 13, 13 down to 16. The son of David will rule forever. So someone's going to come from David and he's never going to die. He's going to keep on being the king. And he doesn't stand for election. He's a benevolent dictator. Or what about Isaiah and Isaiah 9, 6 coming 200 years after David spoke? Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end. Which is where the post-millennialists get it, by the way. His government will constantly grow. We just think that growing is going to happen after he comes back. They think it's going to happen right now. We think as soon as he comes back, then it will grow. That's a prophecy. It's a promise. He's the mighty God. He's the Prince of Peace. That's Isaiah 9, 6. What about Malachi? Or oh, what about Jeremiah 23, verse 5? In Jeremiah 23, verse 5, it says he will rule all the earth. Or in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, it says this one who's going to come from God will be the S-U-N, the sun, the Dambu. He's going to rise with healing. He's going to make everything bad good. This one who is coming from God would be the great king. And when the Old Testament talks about it, usually it talks about this king who's coming as if he's going to make everything happy. Look at your world and look straight into the news and notice how much bad is happening. When you do that, you should glorify God. When you see what's happening in your own country and you're discouraged, when you see what's happening with the corruption, when you see what's happening with the mismanagement and the stealing and the thievery and the unjust laws and the fact that our constitution allows the murder of babies, it's enshrined in this constitution that you can murder babies and not be penalized. Read the constitution. How many of you have read the South African constitution? Go read it. I can give you the section if you want. It enshrines the right to murder babies. And when you look at those things, you just remember, it is promised that there is someone coming from God. And that one who comes from God is going to heal all the problems. And he's going to save those babies. He's going to make it so that those things don't happen. 
He's going to fix it. He's going to heal everything. He's going to stop the war and the crime. He's going to put all the security guards out of business. They're going to have to look for other work. Won't you be happy if security guards all had to have new jobs? You won't even need locks when he's the king. Because no one will walk in your house without your permission. He's the one coming from God. But in several places in the Old Testament, it also says the one coming from God will be a suffering servant. All of that, all of that is held when they say, now we know, you know everything. Now we know you are the one sent from God. When you hear that phrase, you are sent from God, you remember the word Christ. Christ is not a name. It is a title. Christ means what? Messiah or anointed one. Who do you anoint but a king? When, when you see the word Christ, you think of the Hebrew word Messiah. Christ is the Greek word. Messiah is the Hebrew word. Mashiach. Mashiach Christos. Christos and Mashiach both mean the anointed one. It's simply the one that God promised all through the Old Testament, who's going to be anointed, and it's not any president, it's not any parliament member, no, 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 it's going to be God himself, Emmanuel, God with us, right? These disciples get it. They say to themselves, he knows everything. And he's God's Messiah, he's God's anointed one, he's the one who's going to fix everything. Do you believe that? Do you trust in that? Do you understand that? Is your whole heart directed that way? Are you Christ-centered in your faith? Do you really believe in Jesus or you do just believe in God? Remember, he corrected that in John 14, 1. This same passage, John 14, 1. You believe in God? Also, you must believe in me. It's not enough to believe in God. And ask your friends and family that. Ask them, say, I learned in church today. How do you know you'll go to heaven? And they'll say to you, if, this has been my experience, if they don't go to this church, maybe there's others, I'd be so happy if there were, but in general, the people that I've seen, 99% of the people, if you ask them, how do you know you'll go to heaven? Oh, something, something, or they might say at the best, I believe in God. Anything else? Are you forgetting anything? But brothers and sisters, you must believe in Christ. That's the first point of the message. So if you go now, I want you to remember that the disciples said, we know something. We've got certainty. We are resting our confidence on this. Two things. What is it? Christ knows everything. And number two, he comes from God. He's the Messiah. He's the Christos. He's the Christ. He's the anointed king. He's going to fix it all. Every single problem will be fixed by him. That's our hope. But that's not the end of the passage. I could have stopped right there for the sermon. I could say, come back next week to see Jesus' answer. But I'd like to explain Jesus' answer to you right now. Look down. Look down in verse 31. Simplest statement. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Or you could say, do you truly believe? Do you really believe? Do you get it at this point? Oh, really? Are you really trusting in me? He is critical of their faith. He is doubting their confidence. 
We are told by the charismatics that you should never doubt. Jesus doubted them. They had more faith than Jesus. Their faith was misplaced. Just like Peter who said, everyone will do this but not me. Oh, Peter, you're so confident and I'd like to destroy your confidence. Friends, it is a great blessing when someone loves us enough to destroy our false confidence. Thomas Shepard, a Puritan living in the 1600s, preached 41 sermons, 41 sermons on the parable of the ten virgins. Five wise, five foolish. You know that story, right? Ten girls go out to wait for the bride and the groom. They bring, five of them bring their lamps and bring oil to stay late at night. And the other five bring their lamps, but they don't bring oil. In the middle of the night, it's dark. They have no light left, no oil left. They have to run. Five of them are lost. Five of them go in. What's the picture? There are many false Christians, right? Because there were 10 girls. They were all the same in that they were all maidens. They were all the same because they all had lamps. They were all the same because they wanted to go into the wedding. But they were lost. The whole point of that parable is, if you're not a true Christian, you will be lost. Thomas Shepard preached 41 sermons on that parable. 600 pages of small print that I just saw yesterday at Augustine. And I thought, I need to get this book. But how much better if you and I would get that truth into our hearts? What if you are one of the fake virgins? What if you say, well, but I'm going to church. Oh, I gave money. Oh, I was baptized the 31st of October. Oh, well, I was, I was. Are you sure? Our Lord Jesus wants them to doubt. And you know what the problem is? We have been taught by these wicked false teachers, speak faith, speak faith, speak faith, never doubt. You would be very wise if you doubted. Here's the girl who's about to marry a guy. And if you just look, he has a history of getting angry very quickly. He has a history of hitting people when he gets angry. He has a history of losing jobs. Every six months he goes to a new job. And sometimes for eight months in a row he doesn't have a job. And he's constantly asking his father for help. He has that history. It would be very wise if the girl would doubt. It would be a great blessing to her if her father or her friend or her girlfriend would say to her, Don't, what are you thinking? Don't you see this? Oh, but I just have faith. It's all going to work out. No, no. There's these problems. Don't make me doubt. Doubt is from Satan. Faith is from God. No, it's not. That's a false faith from Satan himself. The same thing is true when you go to buy a car. You look and you say, well, it's leaking oil, but I just speak faith that the engine won't have a problem. Well, and I see, that, I see that it's been in an accident. Well, I just speak faith that the metal will reshape itself. You know these charismatics talk about healing people? Why don't they go down to the panel beaters and heal the cars? They can't heal cars. They can't heal cell phones. Why do you think they can heal something much, much, much more complex, like your body or your soul? A car is nothing compared to the eye. If they say they can heal eyes, why can't they heal your Audi? No. It would be wise for you to doubt. It's wise for you to doubt false teachers. It's wise for you to doubt yourself. And that's what Jesus is teaching here. A wise man will doubt himself. A foolish man will be very self-confident. Oh yeah, yeah, I've got this covered. Read the Apostle Paul. Who is sufficient for these things? What do you have that you did not receive? 
Now, if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? Remember the Laodiceans, we are rich. We have need of nothing. Revelation chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. We don't need anything, the Christians at Laodicea said. And Jesus says to them in a letter, I tell you, you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. That's the reality. Five things. Their thought about themselves, oh, things are going pretty well. Church um, visitation will begin very soon. Every November and December, I try to visit all the church members and visitors at our church. I'm going to ask you three questions, so get ready. I'm going to come to your house if you'll allow me and let me come. And I'm going to ask you, how was this year? And you're going to tell me good, bad, or in the middle. And then I'm going to say, why? And then I'm going to say, how can I pray for you? And you're going to tell me what things, hey, please pray for me in this way. And then I'm going to ask you the third question. Do you still want to sign the church covenant? And you see on that first question, usually, because I get to see all of you, and I've done this for many years, but you only, you only do this one time. And you don't see all those people. I do. And what I found is the people who are most consistent coming to church, the people who are most dedicated, the people who serve the most and go on evangelism the most and pray the most and help the most, those people generally have a low view of themselves and will commonly say, oh, this was a hard year. It felt like I was just sinning. Please pray for me to persevere. And the people who are least committed to the church, what do they tend to say? This was a pretty good year for me, in general. Not always, but that in general, if you graph it out. What would you say? I'm going to come ask you, unless you just don't answer my calls. Because now when I call you, you're going to know what I'm going to ask. I'll just let you know, when you see my name, that's me, I'm calling for that. Generally speaking, false Christians have the most confidence and true Christians are chiseling away saying, wait a minute, what's the problem? No, oh, I see so much sin in myself. Proud people are usually blind to their pride. And that's what Jesus says. Oh, really? Really? Do you believe? Look at verse 32. Behold, the hour is coming. Yes, is now come. It's going to come, but in fact, it's here already. And you will be scattered, every man to his own, and you will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. He challenges them. Notice that first of all, in verse 31, he questions them, which is the gentlest way to critique someone. Are you sure you want to do that? That's much softer than saying, what are you doing? Or, you're doing the wrong thing. Are you sure that's the right thing? He's gentle with them because he is meek and gentle. He's humble. And even though he knows everything and has all the power, he comes to you so gently and picks you up and helps you. Sometimes men and Christians and church members get angry when, they're, when someone speaks to them or when they're rebuked. He's being too pushy. He's meddling again. He's giving problems. And I would say, okay, 
But don't, don't turn away the truth because the man wasn't gentle enough. Our Lord, however, was very gentle. But even though he's gentle, he does not ignore the state of their hearts. Do you see, that's the problem with our world. Our world says, I'll be so gentle that I will not say anything. And that's a sin. And some of you need to get over that particular sin. When you see your wife or your child or your friend or your relative or another person coming to the church, some of you have this problem and you say, oh, well, I know this person hasn't come, but oh, well, what can I do? I don't want to be nosy. I don't want to be rude. You should do what Jesus did and gently ask them, hey, where have you been? How many people have spoken to Isaac over the past eight weeks? How many of you have called him or written him? We haven't seen him now, but he was here every week almost until the beginning of October. That's a great danger. Mr. Michele, when you're not here, we are thinking about you. Right? Faith and any. When I wasn't here, were you here? Don't answer. But our Lord gives evidence for this. In verse 32, he tells them, here's the reason I'm asking, do you believe? Because persecution is coming. Difficulty and hardship is coming. So let me close here with these five applications. Sincerity is not the same as faith. What is sincerity? This is sincerity. Oh, I am a really, really, really committed to Jesus. It's talk. Mere sincerity is talk without a life behind it. Some of you have told me, in fact, I've been told by more than two people in this church, I struggle with lying. Please pray for me not to lie. I thought that's very perceptive. And I'm very glad that there has been an atmosphere in our church where you can be honest and tell your pastor, pray for me because I struggle with lying. Because first of all, I know that almost everyone struggles with lying. So just three of them had the grace to admit it. (laughs) And secondly, because if you'll admit that you sometimes lie, that's the beginning to fixing the problem. You know what? I do. I try to pretend that I'm very strong and stout. But in reality, I may be more like Peter. We might be doctrinally correct like the disciples. The disciples said the right thing. They said, we know that you come from God. You're the Messiah. They were doctrinally correct. And yet what? Still in great danger. We might feel like believers, but not be believers. Stephen, let me speak right to you, brother. Do you feel like a Christian, but maybe you're not? Number two, men's own views of their spirituality are often inflated. Men think that they will never fall to sin. They say, oh yes, I really know this for sure. Oh really, do you? We're often very weak. Number three, men know a great many things based on prejudice and bias, not the facts. Follow that. That might be the most important thing for you today. Men know many things, but it's based on their prejudice, not based on the facts. Like this. Oh, there's so much crime here. It's all those Shonas. Really? Have you looked at the reports from the police? I've actually talked to police. And they said Shonas are lower in percentage in the crime than Arvendas and Songas. But I've heard repeatedly, 
Oh, the shonas, they do it. I'm not doubting the shonas do crime. I'm doubting this question. They do most of it. Is it based on prejudice or on fact? What about your own conversion account? Oh, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. Based on what? Many of us want to quickly say, I'm a Christian. Based on what? Number four. Hardship is divinely arranged in the plan of God and must not be removed. Hardship is divinely arranged in the plan of God. It must not be removed. The sheep are going to be scattered. The priests are coming right now. The 200 or so soldiers and priests are coming from the high priests and from the Romans at that very moment to arrest Jesus. And he knows it's going to be hard. And I could call angels and stop this right now. I don't want to stop it. I want the hardship to go on. I want you to experience the hardship. You say, oh, send the hardship away. And this is the great error of the wicked prosperity religion. The prosperity religion says, God wants to take away all the pain right now. But Jesus says, no, I don't. The hour is coming and it's here right now. I don't want to take away the pain. I want you to have that accident. I want you to go through the sickness. I want your child to die. What? You can't say that. He wants those hard things to happen. So like Job, your faith will be tested and you'll see, do you love Jesus or do you love comfort? Which one do you love? Do you love Jesus when there's money in the bank and food on the table? Or do you love Jesus when you have to make a choice? My own stomach or God himself? That's true faith. The man who chooses God when it hurts, when it's painful. And every one of us has different pains. For some of you, it's going to be physical. For some of you, it will be financial. For some of you, it's going to be problems with friends or coworkers or relatives, and you just can't seem to remove them. The problems with your child or your husband or your wife or your friend, and you can't seem to remove them. And you say, why? Why don't you take this problem away from me? Oh, I've got to bring that pain and difficulty to see where your confidence lies. So are we not like these disciples? Are we not quick to evaluate ourselves and place ourselves at a passing grade? Are we not quick to say Romans 12, 3? Though through the grace of God given to me, I say to every one of you not to think more highly of himself than he ought. Romans 12, 3. Don't think too highly of yourself. And here's where the real confidence comes. I close with this. Are we devoted to the Son of God? So I told my children this morning, when you come to church, the message is for you, kids, because you've wondered, am I a true Christian? And some of you that were in our baptism class and weren't yet, haven't yet joined, you, you might say, am, am I a true believer? Here's the answer. Are you turning to Christ? Are you trusting in him? Are you loving him? Are you resting in him? That's the question. You're not perfect, but are you drawn to Christ? Not merely God, not merely religion, but Christ. Do you love his laws? In this same sermon, John 14, verse 15, keep my commandments and so you will prove to me, be my disciples. If you love Jesus, you will obey his laws. I don't obey his laws perfectly. I sin against his laws, but I can say when I do, I hurt and want to return. Is that you? I want to learn his laws. I want to obey his laws. Is that you? I like to think about Jesus. I love singing these songs. How many times has it happened in your heart that when you're singing you think, I wish I could sing the whole book. Only three songs today. I want to sing it all. 
Are we willing to put off this critique of our faith as if we can put God on our calendar and say, I'll take care of this in the first of the new year. That's a great danger. And it's what is warned about in this passage. Do not put God on your calendar. If he put you on his calendar, like today, the 21st of November, 2021, you run to him and bow and kiss the sun, lest he be angry. Oh, Lord Jesus, we pray for your spirit. We pray for your grace. We pray for convicting power. We pray for life from the dead. We pray for spiritual revival in our hearts. We pray that our false faith would be critiqued and would be found to rest in Jesus. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.